My name is Dr. Katherine Kiefer Newman, and this is my podcast, Lost in the Rabbit Hole, The Dark Side of Folktales. I have a doctorate in mythological studies and a master of fine arts and creative writing, but long before any of that, I've loved folktales. Folktales, fairy tales, myths, legends, urban legends, all things story. And this is a podcast about some of the lesser known things, the hidden things, the things found deep inside of tales that we perhaps unknowingly give over to our children. But these stories, they never let us fully go. They haunt the corners of our dreams, stalk us in our fantasies. We can't shake them loose. And the rabbit hole, it's just an ordinary thing. We pay no mind to it sitting out there in the corner of the garden or the middle of a field or maybe tucked into the roots of a tall tree. We pay no mind to it at all. That is, until we fall in. Join me as I lose myself in this unknown space, this place, this rabbit hole, and rediscover so many of the things left behind. But before we begin, I want to give a warning. I will be talking about the grotesque, foul, horrific things left out of children's versions of folktales. There is violence in these stories and broken societal taboos. If you are at all vulnerable to such information, please turn back. In the distance, we can hear the thunder crashing, smashing against the world. The moon is high and full, but unseeable tucked underneath blankets of clouds. It's safe from the terrific noise and no help for us. Though it's dark here as we make our way out of the forest where we've been lost for so long, Still, the sky refuses to light even our next step. In some distance somewhere above us, we hear this thunder, and deep in the oldest part of our soul, we know that this thunder is from no storm. The cacophony is otherworldly, and it sends shivers from up the pounding ground through our very bones. It's almost as if here in this winter time, when the veil between the mundane world and that other misty, spectral world of dreams and night terrors, it's almost as if we've fallen through, tumbling into the realm of the unseelie courts, Yeats's solitary fairies, the kingdom of the dark elves, or the land of the Tillithtig. If so, we'd best take care and watch where we walk, best be respectful but not chatty with anyone we meet and definitely not stop to eat a tasty-looking berry. Or maybe the spectral shapes that come out of the shadowy canopy of cloud and mist, maybe they're specters, ghosts of those who have come before. Like the Night Rangers, a crew of Confederate soldiers led by Lieutenant George Dixon, early every morning since they disappeared on February 17, 1864, Dixon and his crew marched silently from the Alhambra Hall, across a bridge, down to Breach Inlet. There are reports that on some mornings, just before the sun comes up, you can see them fade into the Charleston Harbor. But these lonely spirits pay no mind to onlookers. They have a job to do. The thundering and pounding we hear is something much more potent. It could be that the pandemonium and chaos we've encountered on this night is the wild hunt 
the time is right, near the new year, just past Yule. And there at the forefront is the leader, a fierce ghost warrior. Or maybe it's a god. Some ancient being from any of the oldest cultures that have formed in this world. Welcome to episode four, titled, They Ride, We Hide. This is another two-part episode where we look at iterations of the folkloric frame of the wild hunt. It has to be in two parts, because there's actually so many variations, some more ridery rides than others. The wild hunt is an old folklore with origins murky. For example, in some of the tales from northern France, the leader of the wild hunt is the goddess of death, and her procession is a pack of witches and hags, specters, other tortured souls. Woe be to anyone, especially a man with sin on his soul, who might encounter this gathering. In the European tradition, this tale type is in the Stith Thompson Index of Folklore as motif type E501. It was named The Wild Hunt by Jacob Grimm in his encyclopedia titled German Mythology, published in 1835. But these tales definitely go back much further than the middle 1800s, and we can find variants of the hunt frame in all cultures, with some of them particularly ancient. Ovid, for example, has a representation. Now, before I go on, I want to address a bit of housekeeping. My background is in Jungian and Campbellian mythography, but I'm not so much the universalist. While I do see these stories all over, and I see them across place and space and time, I think of them more as part of the bigger pattern of human thinking. The last thing I want to ever do is look at a significant cultural tale specific to that cultural group of folks and reduce it to something small and ununique, diluted across many cultures. So, these are frames, the similarities. But beyond that general outline, each one is distinctive and special for its singularity. We can see this very, very clearly with the Wild Hunt tales, especially once we get away from Jacob Grimm's take on it. The myth, legend, lore changes It adapts to geography, history, language, and people. But variants of the wild hunt do tend to share a common scenario. Dreamlike images of focused hunters and the hunted, often riding horses or other beasts of burden, but also marching, flying, frequently engaging in battle, pounding after something in hot pursuit across the sky, or even spanning great distances over ground. Look up into the trees on an overcast night, and you might find yourself in the middle of a ride. In the European versions, the hunters are sometimes elves, not of the Santa variety, or fairies, not of the Disney variety, or they're the dead pulled up from their eternal resting places. They've been called hunters, huntsmen, the riders, ghost riders, skeleton riders, black riders, and white riders. They also don't always ride horses or any animal, and we're going to see some of that. One theory has it that the stories of the wild hunt come from people and places that have either been invaded frequently or who are frequent invaders themselves. Maybe. (laughs) 
There are tales of historical figures being taken by or choosing to ride with the hunt. Some of the tales say that the hunt will pull souls out of corpses so that they can ride across the sky, like it's a a gift. (laughs) Others that the hunt doesn't only take the souls of the dead and will be to anyone caught in their path. Many evil deeds are attributed to these hunts. Like in the Orkney Islands, where the hunters are trows or trolls, these creatures hate the sunlight, and they're going to go crashing out of the ground from these mounds that they live in. They're going to catch and eat any unwary traveler on dark nights. Catherine Briggs tells us that the supernatural spectral huntsmen are in wild pursuit of something we may never learn. And maybe that's for the best. Not only do the tales change out the kind of hunters, but also who leads the hunt. There's a Welsh variant where the hunters are led by the Lord of the Dead. He has with them a pack of hounds with blood-red ears. Of course, sometimes it's the very fiendish and even a little dashing Dando traveling with his dandy dogs. Dando is another name for the devil. And you have to know that if it's the devil, then the dogs are hellhounds, and they're all hunting down sinners and the unbaptized. According to the Peterborough Chronicle from 1127, some 20 or 30 shadowmen rode on dark horses with eyes like holes into hell. And it isn't just one night you might find yourself faced with this phantasmagoria. One poor monk reported the event happening every night for nine weeks. While most of these tales depict the hunt as terrifying, with the hunters and their leaders out to get your soul, some of these wild rides really just trample bystanders. For example, there are variants of King Arthur leading the pack. He'll collect the souls of warriors, ignoring anyone else. But if you get in the way, you'll be crushed. This ride is a regular event, according to the history of a certain area. It is said, in fact, that if you pay a visit to Somerset, England, and stop by Cadbury Castle, you might find yourself stumbling down an old lane near the castle called King Arthur's Lane. The legend goes that on wild winter nights, the king and his hounds can be heard rushing, stamping, crushing the ground beneath their spectral feet. Now, in southern parts of England, it's the mythical king whose story goes that this king of the Britons named Herla met by chance with a king from the dwarves, who invited the Briton king to a wedding. Herla attends this three-day event, but time in the Fey realm is not the same as time here. Herla tries to return to Britain, but some 200 years have passed. The name King Herla comes from the Old English, Herlekining. He was sometimes called the Alder King, or Earl King, or Elf King. All of these are a pronunciation variation of his name. And just as a note before we go on, if Herlaking sounds at all like Harlequin, that's because the name is the same root. Although the figure changes substantially from the Old English to the Old French, where Helikin and Halkin and later Harlkin is originally a malignant or treacherous spirit, a wicked specter leading early French tales of the wild hunt. Later, this tricky demon Harlequin became part of the Italian Commedia dell'arte. There he goes from a glutton dressed in rags doing pratfalls, the early days, to the later figure of a silent clown, still wicked, 
wearing the diamond-patterned onesie that we see on playing cards. Uh, and in the Old German, Herla Keining, or just Herla, uh, was a kind of a Woden figure and was conflated with Woden in many tales of the Wild Hunt. Woden is also sometimes master of the Yule, and this changes the tone of the Wild Hunt. It doubles as a festival celebrating the change of the seasons. This connection to Yuletide and the end of the Western year comes mainly from the mountainous part of Germany, where the Wild Hunt leader may instead be Halt, Holly, Bertha, Faust, or Hemi. This is part of what makes this tale, like so much folklore, rooted in seasons as well as in places. So as I said, this figure and the name change is very significant, and it all comes from that mountainous region of Germany. The figure may or may not have been a goddess, may or may not have been a witch, but she did have a lot of different names, and each of them is indicative of where she comes from and also maybe when. This is one of the variants that Jacob Grimm recorded in German mythology. There, he dubbed her Frau Bertha, with this name connecting her to the birch trees that grow in the alpine regions of Austria and the Christmas season, the whole season, which includes the New Year and the Epiphany. In her goddess version, her name may also be loosely translated as the Shining One. Uh, I understand, though, that there isn't a lot of hard evidence for this, but it is a lingering theory. Grimm tells us that Berta was a beloved goddess who protected babies, children, and women, and she would collect the souls of the dead. She was a traveler between the worlds of the living and the dead, a messenger, guide, called a psychopomp in mythology. She has a symbol of her connection, a belt with three golden keys hanging from it. The three keys represent the three cycles, birth, death, and rebirth. In her goddess form, she presides over all of these times of human life, and in this guise, she would gently lead the souls of the babies and the children into the afterlife. There are some lovely woodcuts of her with two faces showing this from about the 1100s forward. In her gentle and protecting aspect, Berta has long black hair worn in braids on the sides of her head, and she wears a long white gown. But that's just one part of her personality. In other tales, potentially later ones, she's an old crone with a beaked nose made of iron. She's dressed in rags. She's literally referred to as a wild character who belongs to the forest. She walks with a cane, but don't be fooled into thinking she's frail because under those skirts, she also carries a deadly, sharp knife. In Slovenia, we learn that the word perštin, a variation of perčta, and berčta or berta, translates to female masks. Well, sort of. There are masks. They're worn in processions, some tame with children marching, much like the American Halloween but others full of partiers and revelers, being rowdy, causing mischief, and sometimes actual property damage. These tend to be from the last week of December to the first days of January, including January 6th, which is the Epiphany. Her connection to the Epiphany may be where her nature changed from goddess to monster. Maybe. 
Al Ridenour, in his podcast, Bone and Sickle, tells us, at this stage in Persia's mythology, the company she leads, and he means the group of people going with her, the company she leads is most often understood as spirits of the departed. With time and frequent attacks from the pulpit, Pershta's pagan company came to be commonly feared, not as ghosts, but as demons. I'll come back to that in a second. Something presumably closer to the horned figures we now know. By the 15th century, he says, a tradition involving costume processions or appearances of these figures had evolved. So it, it didn't start out as a procession, but it turned into a procession. <laughs> Her witchiness affected her look, too. So that beaked iron nose, it got longer. And sometimes it was drawn as dripping, and sometimes she is depicted as having one or two chicken feet. Her hands also became claws. And as the woodcuts became more elaborate pieces of art, she is dressed in rotting furs, black rags, other horrors. In this guise, she is a punisher— and her crew is that Pershtin, right? They seem to be a band of Krampuses, horned monsters coming to punish the wicked. This is where our wild hunt comes in. Many of her stories have her leading the Pershtin and collecting up their, the souls of the unbaptized, but also punishing others and collecting up souls of any of the damned. It depends on the, the tale variant and often where it comes from. In her pack of wild riders, she takes those souls with her. So as she gathers them, they, they expand her ranks. They expand the hunters. So they're just going along, scooping up whoever is in their way. This is the end of part one of They Ride, we Hide, Episode 4 of the Lost in the Rabbit Hole podcast. In Part 2, I ask, how loose do we want to be with the frame of a pack of otherworldly hunters? If we open the frame, there are many, many other tales that we can look at. Jacob Grimm might not approve, but you might. I dive into some of the more contemporary iterations of this frame, well, sort of contemporary, <laughs> also, some of the weirder, wackier, and maybe more shocking things. That's in part two. Please join me. This has been Lost in the Rabbit Hole, the dark side of folktales. Thank you so much for listening. In future episodes, I will explore many other dark, shadowy corners of some of our favorite tales. So please, if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing. You can also find Lost in the Rabbit Hole on Twitter, on Instagram, or you can visit my webpage at catkeifernewman.org, where I will have updates on all projects that I'm working on. I am Dr. Katherine Kiefer Newman, and this was Lost in the Rabbit Hole.